Support for Switched On Pop comes from VibeCheck. If you need more of my friend Sam Sanders in your life, then you'll want to check out his new pod called VibeCheck. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture, from foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup. Every Wednesday, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's like your favorite group chat come to life. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan, and with my co-host Charlie Harding out on paternity leave, I have shown the uh, proverbial bat signal. And today I am very pleased to welcome James Bennett II into the studio. James, thank you so much for being here. Yo, thank you for having me. Appreciate it, man. So tell us a little about yourself, James. I write about classical music, specifically lately the intersection between classical music and race and classical music and society. And those are things that I generally like to think about and turn over. I'm so excited you could be here, James, with the show's dad, Charlie Harding, Hi, Charlie. <laughs> like both kind of literally and metaphorically, the show's <laughs> dad away. The kids get to indulge in some of their more scurrilous musical pursuits. And for me, that means jazz with our friend uh, Natalie Weiner. Hi, Nat. And now classical with, with you, one of my favorite writers on the subject. And you've taken some of the thoughts you've been having about classical and pop crossover, and you're going to take us on a wild journey through the past, present, and future of pop classical crossover. So where do we start this, this wild tale, James? Well, I have long been apprehensive of the the fusion of classical music for classical music's sake with right. popular forms like hip-hop. Because, you know, I've, I've listened to some tracks before that do that, and it can come off as kind of corny almost. But about a year ago, I was assigned to interview the rapper uh, Dessa. And for those who don't know who she is, uh, just a quick rundown. She is a Minneapolis-based rapper, poet, writer, Essayist. I mean, she has like a couple features, I think, in, in the New York Times magazine. I'm out here, arms wide, hiding nothing. I've done it all in broad daylight, and I let the cameras run it. I connected with her for pretty, you know, pretty solid interview ahead of a tour with the Minnesota Orchestra. And I had asked her, I had said, you know, you are so fully immersed in the pop and hip-hop worlds. But your dad was a lutenist. That's interesting that her father was a lutenist, the lute being a precursor to the guitar, a plucked string instrument. So I was just trying to figure out what it was like growing up in a baroque-ish household to be a rapper. And I just asked her flat out, I was like, if you had never listened to anything besides hip hop or pop, what would you like someone to listen to uh, for their first classical track? And she told me that she had asked her dad the same question. And her dad, Lutonist dad, threw on box uh, partita uh, number two in D minor. 
and one of the movements from that is styled chaconne. Right, the the chaconne, which is a, a popular Baroque musical style. It's actually originally a dance, and all kinds of composers, in, including Bach, wrote these during the 1700s. My ears definitely perked up when I saw the title of this Dessa track, The Chaconne, because that's pretty exciting to get a Baroque reference in a, you know, 2019 track. You know, when when she explained her process to me with, you know, how she writes and how she collaborates with a full orchestra, it made me think that there's a way to do it. Coincidentally, a year later, you, Nate, have asked me to come hang out with you in studio, and um, she is preparing to drop her studio album with that same orchestra. And there's a piece on that album called Chacon. The Dessa and Minnesota Orchestra crossover version of the Chacon. You're at your best When you're alone Above the fray With your Chacon Yeah, okay, okay. wow. <laughs> So, you know, at first when I was listening to this album, I was like, you know what, I'm sure there's plenty of examples about the way that the orchestra can interact with the solo artists without it competing or being a bit too uh, superfluous in its, uh, I guess, orchestral Mm. mannerisms. But this track stood out to me. It's cool, too, because the Chaconne might be one of those... Uh, 18th century genres that is particularly suited for a 21st century reinterpretation. It's uh, one of maybe the rare styles of Western music that is based on a repeating bass line, like a melodic bass theme that repeats over and over and there's melodic variations on top of that. That seems, you know, very analogous to a lot of contemporary pop music, which often has some repeating bass figure on top of which you have changing lyrics and melodies. Yeah, I mean, that's super interesting you brought that up because um, she told me when she told me about this track and what it meant to her, she had said there's a part in it where she was just so fully immersed and was looping it over and over and over and over again. She was like, I want to, you know, figure out how to either incorporate this into a piece or write a piece using that form. And so the Chaconne was, you know, literally named in honor of this uh, of the Spock piece. And she had told me when she was first doing it with uh, the Minnesota Orchestra, um, they were able to put in a bit, which you just heard, where uh, a solo violinist stands up and uh, plays a bit of the original Bach track. So we've got the contemporary hip-hop artist Dessa reincorporating these Bach violin partitas into her track, the Chaconne with the Minnesota Orchestra. You brought this to me, and I was like, to me this feels like, whoa, this seems so new and bold. But James, you're like, actually, there's a long history of these pop classical crossovers. So I'm curious if you could... Give us some of the backstory and for a way that we might listen to Dessa, not as something new, but something that's part of a longer tradition. Yeah, man. So 
If you think about what crossover means, you have a piece of work of, I guess, any kind of stripe that can transition from appeal to one audience to a completely different audience, right? Right. And if you think about classical music and its connotations, which we will definitely get into later, you have this moment in the early history of recording technology where classical music is kind of dominant. That wasn't, I think, a mistake. Early discs couldn't hold that much sound. So what was prioritized would be classical pieces or opera pieces instead of Mm. more popular forms of music that were emerging, especially in the United States, like specifically jazz by black artists or what would become to known as hillbilly music, later country music, by southern white artists. It was very highbrow. So you have that set up. You have this guy, Enrico Caruso. Mm -hmm. He's an Italian. He's a tenor. And it's really hard to talk about early recording history without bringing him up. If I were to tell you that, you know, we could go out and listen to, like, a superstar opera singer. And I'm not talking about just at the Met or the LA Opera or any major opera house in the country or in the world. I mean, like, I want to come over to, like, your place and kick it. Yo, throw on some tunes. Boom. Here's this opera singer that everyone (laughs) knows, right? To me, that's kind of hard to to imagine right now in 2019. But back in the early uh, 1900s, this dude, Enrico Caruso, like he had one of what I would imagine to be one of the earliest uh, recording contracts. He got a record contract with Victor in 1904. He dropped, I think, around like over 250 recordings in a 20-year period. He died fairly young. So it, it kind of makes sense, right? Because if you have this recording technology that's meant to bring, quote unquote, upper class, high taste music into uh, the living rooms of people that have the money to afford these early records, and those early records can only hold so much audio on it, what well, makes sense, like an opera aria does. You know, we're going to listen to this thing, um, Vesti La Jubia. Damn. Vesti la juba. Wow. We are, I, apologies to all our Italian speaking listeners out there because we are just <laughs> butchering this uh, aria. <laughs> it's by uh, Leon Cavallo. And this is from uh, an opera called uh, Pagliacci, which is the Italian plural for clowns. The elevator pitch is I want to make an opera that incorporates a play within a play, and it's about lustful, uh, murderous clowns. And um, <laughs> that's that's my pitch. You know? Oh my god! So this is like um, this is like the operatic version of uh, it. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have this clown, Kanyo, and uh, basically he finds out that his uh, wife or or girlfriend, I can't quite remember, she's in an affair with someone else in the same troop of clowns. And so his suspicions are confirmed. He's heartbroken. And the the end of the first act, it concludes with this aria that you may recognize. It's pretty famous. And Caruso really kind of killed this role. Like this was kind of his thing. Let's give it a listen. (laughs) 
Wow, what a voice. I can't believe that's from 1902. I mean, the quality of that entirely acoustic recording is kind of extraordinary. I see why this guy was the first big recording star. His voice just, you're able to capture it on this early recording technology in a way that I think not a lot of other singers would have been able to do. What's personally kind of interesting to me is this idea of the of the crossover, right? Like, he sold so, so, so many records and recorded so many. But in a weird way, it's like that's all the listening public kind of had to listen to. Do you know what I mean? You could have the same poll today. I don't know. But it's kind of crossover by de facto. You know, if you're trying to market this phonograph or all this early uh, recording playback technology to, mm. you know, wealthy white people, you're going to pick you know, I guess music that can kind of have that connotation. I think it's a testament to how prolific he was, as you say, that today if you go, I mean, I don't know, let, maybe I would maybe encourage our listeners to, to test this out. I would, I would hazard that if you went to your local Goodwill or Salvation Army and dug through the record bin and tried to find the oldest 78 RPM records they had there, I would put a very high probability on the chance that you would find an Enrico Caruso record in there. I mean, they are just, like you said, they're so ubiquitous. And they've been repressed, too. It's not like these are, like, lost after he died. I mean, companies have come back and remastered them. They've released them as box sets and, you know, super editions or whatever. So even if you're not into opera or classical music or pop music, just from a historical perspective of the trajectory of recording and artists. Yeah for consumption by the masses, that is a person with a, a big shoe in that cap. I don't know if even that's a phrase, but it is now. So now we're going to fast forward real quick. Crusoe dies in, in 1921, which incidentally, I guess, is a time when recording explodes, right? You know, you get some of the earliest uh, jazz records. I think the Dixieland Jazz Band records, I think their first record in like 1919. but the- 1917, but... 1917. Thank you. But the point is, yeah, it's he dies at a point where you where companies are beginning to expand beyond bringing the the concert hall or the opera house to the living room. If we just kind of jump forward in time to the 40s, we find this guy that I find really really fascinating with respect to crossover Mario uh, Lanza. Every time I've read something about him, it's always framed as a tragedy and super popular. Died very young. And I feel that his tragedy is kind of the crossover conundrum in Micro. So his career, like, is kind of in fits and starts, right? He gets some really good exposure. Everyone is like, this Mario Lanza guy is the truth. But then he gets conscripted into the Army for World War II. And um, Hmm. he spends some time uh, in the armed forces. And he comes back and kind of resumes this pursuit of an opera career, but he's so good that someone kind of, you know, pulls some connections and it's like, you kid are going to be a star kind of thing. And this guy gets into the world of, of movies. Like he signs a contract with MGM, uh, Metro Golden Mayor, and it's Mayor himself that's huh. like, I think it's Mayor himself. It's like, yo, like, let's make this happen. So he becomes this movie star with this huge voice. He has such great knowledge of the operatic repertoire, but he is uh, put into these very popular film roles. Kind of like Caruso, it's really hard to overstate 
how big of a deal Lanza was. He was RCA's best-selling artist until Elvis Presley. Like, that's... What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is insane. What's really crazy about that is he was so lauded on the opera stage as an operatic singer that when he moved into the world of film, a lot of opera elites and critics were like, you know, you're a sellout. Like, this isn't real opera. This isn't real art music. It's kind of watered hmm. down, hmm. and it's made for the masses. And what's really funny about that is he started in a movie called The Great Caruso about Enrico Caruso. Like, again, the dude knew his opera, but there was something yeah. about that crossover appeal to mass audiences that I guess the cultural gatekeepers are just like, we don't like that. And that really, mm. really messed him up. I mean, he just wished he could be taken seriously like on an opera stage. And for so long, he couldn't. And that just led to, you know, some insane self-destructive cycles. I mean, he would gain a bunch of weight, lose it all for a film role, started drinking like very excessively, just had a like a, a slate of health problems that really stem from this kind of despair about being a popular and beloved film singer with a desire to be uh, on the opera stage. It, it's just really interesting to me is the artist versus critic conversation. Well, critics may have found him hack and, you know, not legit opera. Other opera mm -hmm. stars, like, thought he was great. Like, even if everyone else in the artistic community is like, no, you, you're legit and you have chops and, you know, I like your pipes that somehow just gets drowned out by this chorus of you've, you've kind of ruined and watered down music. Huh. To give you an example, I guess, of what he sounded like, I decided not to go with a quote-unquote aria from the opera rep. I wanted to do a piece from one of the, his movies, Because You're Mine, and this is a, a track named after that film. I think this broke a million in sales. This is also a really big track. Wow. Because you're mine, the brightest star I see looks down my love and envies me because you're mine, because you're mine. I am digging this a lot more than I thought I would. Mario Lanza, that is cool. I'm stunned that he was the best-selling artist until Elvis on RCA. That's very interesting. And you can hear from Caruso to Lanza, it's like you can still hear that operatic influence, but he's doing a pop song here. And yet there's this kind of tragedy that you're talking about, that he wasn't quite pop enough and wasn't quite opera enough. He was like caught in between. And it sounds like it kind of ruined his life in a way. Yeah, man. I mean, it's not new. <laughs> oh, this crossover appeal, it's too popular. Bring it back a little bit. You know, close the gates a bit more. Yeah, interesting. Okay, cool. So Caruso to Lanza, fast forward. Where are we going next, James? So I kind of want to get to like the, the late 60s. At this time, right, post-50s world, I guess, you start seeing classical music pieces that become crossover hits in their own right. You think, you know, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Yeah. You think Palkable's Canon in D. So you have this moment where it's like yeah. relaxing classics, I feel, are kind of coming. But I wanted to point real quick to Wendy Carlos. She 
did this album in 68 called, wait for it, Switched on Bach, which is... Uh, ah, oh, uh, fascinating. This sounds familiar <laughs> somehow. So Switched on Bach was, a, again, a massive album. It went platinum. Yeah. Let's take a listen real quick to uh, to one of these pieces. This is the prelude and fugue number two in C minor from Bach's uh, Well-Tempered Clavier. Is that how I say that? Clavier? Yeah. Clav- okay. Yeah, clavier. Clavier. I don't know. Whatever. Clav. Well, clavier. It's the snobbish yeah. thing to correct that hard on classical music anyway. Yeah. No, we need to run the full game. We need to butcher Italian, uh, German, <laughs> French. We gotta butcher all the all the romance languages on this show. Please add me. Man, 61 years later, that track still bangs. Oh, absolutely. I was listening to it on the way over here, actually. It is like <laughs> headbanging music. It's it really good. so, wow. <laughs> and also, just so everyone knows, go Google Switch on Bach. It's one of the great album covers of all time. <laughs> yeah, and it's really hard to find on, on streaming platforms. But if you can, you know, hunt down a copy of it somewhere... Uh, or just really, I scoured YouTube and found a found a link for it to listen to. It's so cool, and you're right. It 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 bumps. I do think that it is a a bump of an album. What really set this apart was its embrace of the Moog synthesizer. And Carlos worked directly with Moog on making this album. So you have this sound engineer inventor who is working with this composer to really bring out the sheer strength like of this uh, synthesizer in- uh, instruments that's been uh, created. Hmm. Um, it'll be kind of like, I guess, having a piano and you want to make an album of piano music and the inventor of the piano is right there with you, you know, kind of right. collaborating. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, Wendy Carlos takes a lot of different uh, like Bach pieces and puts them through the mode ringer in her own very, very special way. One funny thing about that, too, is... Critics didn't like that either. They thought it was some kind of, I guess, like Bachian bastardization. It wasn't treating this music that we've assigned a kind of sanctity to with enough reverence and respect. Again, it was just Hmm. appealing to way, way too many people. Wow. When I just listened to this again, that Wendy Carlos piece we just listened to, it reminded me a bit of uh, Giorgio Moroder. And it turns out that Marauder was a fan mm. of the album as well. It gave me like heavy Marauder vibes. Giorgio Marauder, the producer of Donna Summer and more recently Daft Punk's uh, Random Access Memories. Yeah, cool. Y- yeah, so, I got- he, so you're saying he was a fan of Switch on Bach? Yeah, I thought it was cool. You know, he was like, he was like, this is not bad. This is awesome. To recap, so we've gone Caruso, Talanza. To Wendy Carlos and switched on Bach. Let's do the the biggest fast forward yet, I think, and jump to classical crossovers of the present. Who would we turn to today to find the modern Caruso, Lanza, Carlos? Who who occupies that role? So I mean, the thing is, it's it's a big space now, and there's a couple of people that we can bring up. But I think one person that has been emblematic of what classical crossover is, what it isn't, who it appeals to, and why it appeals to them 
is uh, one singer by the name of Jackie Ivanko. Mm. If you recall, about nine years ago on America's Got Talent, a 10-year-old Jackie came on and she sang O Mio Bambino Caro, an aria from an opera by um, Puccini. And she wowed the judges, and America was like, this girl is great, whoa! That kind of put her in this light as a squarely classical kind of like opera artist and musician. She was back on the radar again two and a half years ago at the inauguration of one Donald J. Trump. That's why her name sounds familiar. (laughs) I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't place it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The plot thickens. Yeah. And. You know, there's a lot of different ways to read into Trump's, let's say, embrace of opera throughout his 2016 campaign from, you know, saying that he's great friends with Pavarotti. Pavarotti, friend of mine, great friend of mine. Who I should mention is incredibly not alive right now, at least that I know of, to using opera in this very triumphant, quote unquote, classy, gilded way. Hmm. I was reading an article about Ivanko at the inauguration. What that choice from, I guess, that administration or transition team or whatever, what that signified to the rest of America. And it kind of puts the social aspects of classical crossover in micro. And if I can just kind of distill her argument in a sentence, what stands out is you have this thing, opera, which, you know, conjures images of suits and ties and champagne and Mm -hmm. velvet Mm -hmm. and just a gilded lifestyle. And those little uh, binoculars that you hold up to your face with a little stick. Yeah. Right, right. And there's been enough of those pieces from the opera repertoire that have crossed over to the masses that the public can own that without feeling super divorced from the opera world. And you can go back, like, you know, the the Caruso, uh, the Lanza records. Pavarotti is a great example mm-hmm. of someone who kind of brought these well-known arias to the public. And there's just this weird accessible, and it's not, I don't think that it's necessarily or inherently bad that it's accessible. What's interesting, she's arguing, is the way that it's used. And so you have this gilded piece of art that's meant to appeal and be consumed by everybody as a backlash against what is wealthy and elite. And that mirrors kind Mm -hmm. of the Trump style of politics in itself. This is a man that casts himself as a champion of the common people, but he is a billionaire. And it's like, what is this billionaire accessibility that's going on? And uh, she was arguing that Jackie... Ivanka really kind of encapsulates that campaign into one person. And given the the backlash that she got, again, from critics that are like, this is too accessible, this isn't great, inadvertently or, you know, calculatedly, I don't know, it kind of put a young white girl into the lens of victimhood from, I guess, musical critics commenting 
from a critical perspective on her voice. And so you have, I think her quote was that you have Donald Trump now ironically as the savior of white womanhood by giving her this platform to share opera with the, I don't know, apparently billions of people that were present at the inauguration. What's interesting to me about her now, though, is that, you know, she's still charting and Billboard still tends to classify her as a classical artist. I listened to one of her albums from this year and the first track just kind of struck me because it didn't necessarily sound operatic at all. Yeah, this is um, Burn. Burn from the album Debut. Would it be fair to call this the 2019 version of Mario Lanza, like another pop song, but sung in this very operatic kind of high grand drama style? Yeah, you know, I I don't think that's unfair to make that placement. Okay, James, at this point, I feel like we are right on the verge of a massive question of like, what is classical music anyway? And in order to prepare to answer that, Let's take a quick ad break, recoup, and come back refreshed and ready to tackle this classical conundrum. All right, let's do it. This is exciting. Support for Switched on Pop comes from Vibe Check. If you were an Intuit fan and you are missing Sam Sanders, then have no fear. He's back with another great pod called Vibe Check. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture. From Elon Musk and foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup to Usher's Super Bowl halftime show, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. They're currently doing a series called Hey Sis, where they're highlighting the compelling stories of black women and their achievements. They're being joined by special guests Regina King, Audie Cornish, Raquel Willis, and more. Vibe Check is your favorite group chat come to life. You can join the weekly Kiki every Wednesday. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Can't believe Sam made me say Kiki. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We are back and we have just been taken on a wild ride through like a century plus of classical crossover with our guest James Bennett. Now, as we have moved from Caruso in 1902 to Jackie Ivanko in 2019, it seems like it's time to step back for a second and say, when we're we're throwing this word around a lot, classical music, what are we actually referring to when we say that, James? Nate. I don't know. (laughs) I really dislike the term classical music in general because it's so broad, but I have no idea what else to Mm. call it because I think classical music and really all that it stands for in the popular mind and the way we're taught to consume it 
with its rules. Mm-hmm. Like you go to a concert, you don't clap. You imagine you have to like dress up to go and enjoy it. You can't fall asleep. Whereas if you were at a pop concert and you got tired, you could go home and no one would think anything of it. It's a, it's a socialized kind of music. And just to say, I mean, I don't think that's an accident. I feel a lot of, you know, um, historically uh, white supremacist forces at play that have tried to keep that music exclusive and separated from Mm. a wider place of popular consumption. But for me, the best way to think about what classical music is and isn't is to compare it with crossover, right? Because that addition of Mm. that word crossover implies that classical is there. But it implies there's something unclassical about it enough to bring it to a completely different audience. I just want to ask you, Nate, if you know what the number one, at time of recording, the number one classical album right now is on the Billboard charts. I'm going to say it's a recording of Chopin Ballades by Simone Dinnerstein. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what. Please, please enlighten me. It's interesting you you uh, you take that guess because um, there's a couple of different Billboard classical charts. I think there's like classical traditional and there's classical crossover, and maybe I think there's a holiday ah. classical. But the, you can also find data for it all aggregated together. It's just like the classical chart, and number one right now is singer and violinist Lindsey Sterling, who I would say is immensely popular. I, I, I'm, I'm, not gonna, hmm. I'm not gonna say otherwise. I do think she's a very popular artist as the view count on some of her YouTube videos um, show. But let's take a listen to um, the first track from her most recent album, Artemis. This is called Underground. Mind you, this is the opening track of the number one classical album, according to Billboard. And as we listen to it, I think it's good to keep in mind, again, classical crossover explicitly states this is classical, and it implies there's something fundamentally unclassical about it that can appeal to a wider audience. So let's take a listen. Wow, James, James, whoa. Thank you for playing this for me. This is an, an artist I've heard of and I don't think I've ever actually listened to like properly before. What to make of this? Classical crossover, yeah. I mean, that, that works for me. It raises some questions though, like what is classical about this exactly? Because I get the crossover because I hear these techno beats and synth swells and that all feels firmly within the world of pop music but then the classical part she's playing the violin and what else i'm not i'm so i think the classical part right like maybe it's that intro it's a very there's a very extended violin introduction Mm-hmm. There's also that idea of instrument identity, right? Like, if you see a saxophone, I will bet the money in my pocket right now, I think I have a single dollar bill, so I'm very comfortable doing this, 
But if you see a sax, you're like, oh, sweet, like jazz is going to come up or like something jazzy, which is admittedly a term that I that I hate. If you see a banjo, whoa, this is going to be something country. Before you even knew what Old Time Road was yeah. about, when you heard that banjo hit, you're like, okay, Lil Nas X, like we're getting some country stuff. And I feel, and electric guitar, yeah. right? Rock and roll. Rock signifier. Yeah. I feel that violin, even though it transcends these boxes of genre that we created for it, there's still a pull where it's like you're going to get an orchestra when you see a violin. And it's just, again, a socialized response, I think, to the instruments themselves. So when we listen to classical crossover, it's worth stepping back and thinking about, okay, is this actually a really synthetic merging of these two genres' core musical attributes? Or is it more that we take certain perhaps more superficial associations with one genre and sort of graft them onto another. Again, not not to say, to, to pass any judgment or the song, but to understand what we mean by this category and this phenomenon. This is a really interesting example to locate that current iteration of it. Cool. Lindsey Sterling. All right. Nate, I'm going to say that that is probably the, the, the best way to describe this that I've heard, taking the most superficial aspects of something and grafting it onto something else. And again, like, if you like it, that's awesome. Like, I, I think that is, like, totally fine and incredibly valid. And one thing that I don't like listening to is a lot of people, like, in any, like, kind of, you know, critical blog or whatever on the street or at a party with classical music heads, this eternal mm. ragging on on crossover. And it's like, oh, like, it's it's thin or, like, you know, it's just so repetitive. Huh. And it's like, okay, but so is like a two and a half minute pop song on Spotify. <laughs> I get it, but it doesn't always hold up because it's implying then yeah. that you need to have music that's constantly transforming, not only melodically, but harmonically as well. And once you fall into a pattern of a loop, then you've lost all musical integrity. And we just know for a fact yeah. that's not true. Um, so it can just come down yeah. to like, yo, it's not my I thing think- and you can keep it moving. I think Bach, uh, at the very beginning of this episode, listening to that Bach Chaconne, you know, that's to say that repetition or some Austin automotive makes something not classical would be a, a kind of historical amnesia yeah. <laughs> at best. There's another artist out there, and I put artist kind of in quotes because it's multiple people, <laughs> but it's not really a band. It's a vitamin string quartet. And again, they are also... Huh. Wildly popular. I think I was first introduced to them, I want to say, in college by a couple of college friends that were like, I love listening to this music while I study. And huh. the thing about VSQ that's interesting to me is, A, just to you know put it out there, it's not a quartet in the traditional sense. It's a project from a label group. So it's an ever-changing cast of musicians and, you know, producers and creative people working on this one vitamin string quartet project. So they have a ton of releases because of that model. I've heard Portugal the Man covers. I've heard, you know, Kanye West covers. Vitamin string quartet plays ACDC. Like any pop artist that I can imagine right now, there might be a VSQ (laughs) cover of it of some sort. But let's just take a listen to this bit and see if, you know, you can recognize it without me saying the the name of it uh, because they're so good at just explicitly stating musically what they're doing. And there's no obfuscation 
to make it seem, you know, a bit more complicated than it really is. So let's let's give this a listen. Okay, it took it took me a second, but when the Arco came in, yeah. I it was it was immediately clear. The little pizzicato intro, I was like, uh oh, I'm not sure I'm gonna get this. And then the Arco the Bode strings came in and I feel pretty certain saying this is shallow by uh Lady Gaga <laughs> uh. and Bradley Cooper, I guess. Yeah, from yeah. The Star is Born. You know, like again, like there's no, there's no confusion about what it is, and you know, I've come across criticism of this group for the same thing. But I'm like, if you like a song enough, another version kind of like, what's what's wrong with that in a way? Like again, if you if you like it, and if you don't, like that's up to you. And it's actually really funny to me about yeah. that. In an earlier episode that you know y'all did, I think it was uh, Charlie talking about Baby Shark. If you have an earworm, just get another version of that song that's close enough that won't keep the original like stuck in your head. Mm, and I, yeah. I kind of thought of that like listening to this cover of Shallow. Well, that's the other thing too. Can we call it a cover? Is it a classical chamber arrangement? I think that uh, VSQ like falls into that classical crossover distinction as well. I'm very interested in your interpretation because it makes me think of how this, again, to me sometimes I'm like, oh wow, this feels like such a new phenomenon a string quartet covering shallow but and then i think you know composers going all the way back to the the 1500s you would have sacred catholic church composers reworking popular songs of their day into their polyphonic vocal masses so the idea of that something from the popular sphere couldn't then turn into a sort of classical arrangement to think that would be to, again, to ignore the actual history of classical music. So I like where you're coming from here. I'm down with VSQ. D with VSQ. All right. Um, D with VSQ. Exactly. I just want to get your quick thoughts on just comparing that with something that we would consider traditionally classical and getting your thoughts on what makes this different from the Sterling we've heard, from the VSQ we've heard, and I guess even going back to, you know, Ivanko and 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 Wendy Carlos and, you know, Enrico Caruso and them. This is uh, Florence Price's Symphony Number no. 1. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with uh, this composer, this was written in 1932, yeah. and it is the first symphony, not only by the composer Florence Price, but the first symphony by a black woman to be performed by a major American orchestra, in this case, Chicago. Hmm. So let's just listen to the opening bits of, uh, of that first symphony. Yeah, I just want to know what makes that not classical crossover. It sounds listenable to me. I like it. It sounds very American, kind of almost Wild Westy a little bit. What makes this distinctly a quote-unquote classical piece? 
Yeah, that's a that's a that's a deep cue. I mean, I I mean the first thing is there's no vocals. I think that's maybe the like thing that jumps out the most. But otherwise, I'm with you. This is heart pounding stuff. I'm really feeling this, and it makes me think that going back to something you said earlier, what makes this classical and not crossover is as much about the way we perceive the music as the music itself and all these associations that we have with it as something high class, as something sophisticated, as something, you know, baby Mozart. Listening to classical music will make you smarter. Not true. No, and thank you for the record, (laughs) not true. Not true. Listening to Mozart will not make you smarter. Sorry, Mozart. Sorry, Wolfgang. It's like you hear what you want to hear. And and why do people want to hear all those attributes we just listed? Going back to something you said, it probably has a lot to do with preserving the sort of racial, the sort of economic uh, sanctity of, of this music. And that's something that we don't really need. That's something that's dragging this music down. So, man, Florence Price, I want to hear her on the classical crossover charts. That would be awesome. So then I was thinking, Nate, you know, we have these examples of both classical music and classical crossover, music that has been originally, I guess, either composed or arranged to kind of take elements from one and graft them onto the other. But mm. what about like the, the lift, like the art of the sample is something that I've been thinking about. And there is no shortage of classical music in hip hop. That's not that's not yeah. a, a thing that you know, we're, we're lacking really. And I, I love hip hop for the record. Sometimes it works well. Sometimes like any other kind of music, be it classical crossover or, or anything, sometimes it's kind of corny or sometimes it just ages f- interestingly to put it nicely. One of the first ones that come to mind is uh, Nas's I Can mm. from the album God's Son. I know this one. That's uh, Für Elise. Yeah, by by Mr. Beethoven uh, himself. Ludwig von, the one and only. I loved this song when I was a kid, when this album came out. Listening to it now, it's not my favorite beat. It doesn't really do it for me like it did like fifth grade James, right? But what I find interesting about it is that you have this children's hook. Nas, effectively, if you don't know the song, he's rapping about how you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. If you want to be a, like a doctor or mm. a lawyer or whatever. It's almost a subversion, as we were talking about earlier, about how you have this music for the white elite and uh, the producer, uh, Stallone Remy, he's just kind of taken this and, like, you know, given it to an incredibly popular form of music, hip-hop. It's not lost on me mm-hmm. that these children are singing the hook, that Fear Elise is, a, I guess, a popular, maybe not beginner piano piece, but it's not, like, Moonlight Sonata, for instance, right? Like, it's a piece you can learn fairly right. early on. So it's like this innocent, art, this artistic yearning reaching for something that has historically been said it's not for you 
black America and taking that music and then huh. like slapping it onto a, a hip hop beat um, that has been uh, an art form that has just been guided by black America. And it's like, no, we're going to use this to, to further our own music. I don't know. I found that all very interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's that's deep, James. I, I, I wouldn't have heard it in that way. So I, I appreciate that reading. What are some other uh, classical samples in pop that we should check out? People that have talked to me about this know how I feel about this because I made it very, very clear. <laughs> I was blown away when I heard this. The Black Eyed Peas, who I have not really thought about since maybe 2011, dropped an album last year, 2018. For I don't think it was a single. They just dropped like a pretty long music video for a, for this song, and I put it on. And the structure of the song to me is incredibly interesting. There are some incredible samples in there. You have Soul to Soul's uh, Back to Life. Uh, I think there's a Lee Morgan sample in there. Oh, lovely. Yeah. This track is called Back to Hip Hop, clearly riffing on the extensive Back to Life sample. I'm going to throw this on, and we won't get the whole scope of it, but I'm going to pull out one part that made me just go like, what the hell? In like the best possible way. Bring it back. It's a resurrection. Bring it back. It's a resurrection. Bring it back. It's a resurrection. Bring it back. Bring it back. Uh, whoa. I was just talking about, um, Sacred acapella vocal music of the 1500s. <laughs> is that what is that what we're hearing here, dude? This might be one of the top five deepest cut samples I have heard <laughs> in my relatively few years on this planet. So, and I listened to it I, that one section maybe like eight times to make sure I was not crazy. Yeah, this is a sample from. And it's not credited either. Um, it's not on the liners, it's not on Wikipedia, it's not on who sampled or any database. I've Googled the name of this piece together with the Black Eyed Peas song, have turned up nothing. So this is a switched on pop exclusive. Yeah. Right <laughs> this is this is a scoop. Yeah. This is, we are breaking breaking news here. This is okay. So, great. So this is the Impreparia from Tomas Luis de Victoria, who is a Spanish composer in the 16th century, I believe. I guess you could, if you got to lump them in with any error, it might be counter-reformation, right? Like the reformation's already happened and the Catholic Church is doing its own, like kind of cleaning up its acts, relatively speaking, incredibly mm. relatively speaking, given that it's Spain. I know this piece because I personally really enjoy exploring and listening to sacred music, and I have heard this before. This was a, a piece that, it's a series of antiphons uh, sung by two different choirs. And traditionally, it would be sung on Good Friday. It's in Latin, as you just heard, but it, it veers into the anti-Semitic. Whoa, okay. The bit you just heard, if you, if you were to, to translate it, basically is the, the, the figure of, of God uh, chiding uh, the, the Israelites for rejecting 
and by the Israelites, I do mean the Jewish people for rejecting Jesus. Um, you know, this, I led you through the land of Egypt, and this is how you repay me, basically. And that was the tell when I heard the Egypti uh, in that sample. And if you watch mm. the music video, there's a lot of Egypt imagery. And I don't know if, you know, the producers knew what the connotations of all that were. They were clearly going for, what's the Latin-y Egypt thing we can throw in with all these pyramids? and But, like— yeah. Like, you won't even really hear that in a lot of churches anymore because I think back in the 60s, the Catholic Church was like, we should not really do this as much. So wow. that stuck out to me because that is an unadorned sample. There's no there's no beat under it. There's no cool production techniques that have manipulated in any way. The music cuts out completely. You have this, right. this choir come in, do this, I'm, do this really weird you know, choral deep cut, and then it gives a song time to switch up its own act, and then it actually, as I mentioned earlier, it goes into a really cool uh, Lee Morgan sample, like the bass line from one of his tracks. And so that to me was like, what if you use classical music as like a transition? Just like, don't even try to dress it up. Don't even try to make it something that it's not. Give it for what it is and just rock with that. I don't know, that that just really, that blew my mind when I heard it. I was like, what? Who found that? Whoa. Uh, yeah, that is deep. All right. This has been such a wild ride, James. How how do we end this discussion that has now spanned centuries? I'm in your hands. Where how do we how do we put a ribbon on this? You know, we started with Dessa using an orchestra to color her musical stylings. I'm like, these aren't samples. Hmm. These aren't pieces of music, I feel at least listening to the album, that were constructed to appeal to classical listeners. I do think it was Dessa saying to herself, I want to explore the, the timbres that an orchestra uh, will, will afford me as an artist. Uh, and then we got into all these, you know, um, crossover pieces. And I kind of want to tie it up with what happens when you have original compositions for uh, an instrumental group that you might refer to as classical that have been not even grafted onto, but married with original compositions that did have an orchestra in mind to begin with. The the Dessa tracks, a lot of that is the orchestra styling previously written tracks that she did. But this track is two artists coming together with hip hop in mind, plus what if we threw in a bunch of violins and violas and cellos hmm. and uh that would be kanye west's gone from 2005's late registration with film composer john bryan i will die on this hill no matter what you think about kanye i, I think that this song is <laughs> is is awesome it's so much fun to listen to so that piano is a sample of it's too late by otis redding it's too late those are strings huh. that Kanye and John uh, collaborated on. And what I like about those strings is that they're not they're not competing for your attention. They're really just kind of underscoring and providing this great emphasis to the beat that's already been laid down. And it doesn't get stale either. So for everyone that's kind of like, oh, I don't like when you have these violins on loop, cool, because every time someone raps, there are three rappers on this track, Kanye, Cameron, and Consequence. And um, 
uh, it shifts from artist to artist, it just morphs different string uh, motifs. Won't let me get my ideas out, and that make me want to get my advance out and move to Oklahoma and just live in my Sailing, no ceiling, I don't need a roof. Act up, get out. Time behind bars. And since I've gone to a cell for some petty crimes, I guess I've gone to the well one too many times, because I'm gone. Nice. That's a little interesting, yeah. but yeah. Wow, I love. Thank you for for playing this. I've heard this track, but I don't think I've ever really thought about that interlude in this context before. And it makes me realize that you don't always need to look for the quote unquote classical crossovers that scream, "Hey, I'm a classical crossover." Sometimes it's just right there in front of you, and you just have to decide to open your ears and hear it. And to me, like that instrumentation, right, doesn't need to be limited to or claimed by classical exclusively. Like, there's no world in which anyone was thinking to themselves, oh yeah, this new Kanye track, this song is definitely like in that classical crossover style. I think it was a couple of people that got together and were like, you know, it'd be great on this, like a couple of, uh, you know, some violins and violas. Interestingly enough, a Janelle Monet lyric for one of her songs. Like she, what is it, cue the violins and violas. Cue the violins and violas, we gave you life. And boom, they come right on in, and you don't yeah. overthink it. It just it just fits. You're not you're not trying too hard. You're not trying to make the music something that it's not. You're just you know, music is a spectrum. You know, and uh, hmm. you don't need to you don't need to be confined by by boxes too too hard anyway. In my opinion, that is a deep note to end on, James. We can all be big eared listeners and welcome all genres <laughs> into our hearts and minds. I can't thank you enough for for joining us. This has been such a deeply researched and reported uh trip through yeah, like literally centuries of of classical and pop music. So, I couldn't be happier to the the two people left in the world who are still listening to this. Thank you for <laughs> for coming along with us on this ride. But seriously, like switched on pop from switched on Bach to Enrico Caruso, like you can't have pop music without classical music. That's just a fact. These are not distinct genres, and your your work is a testament to that. We'll throw a, a link up to where people can find more of your brilliant writing on uh, the classical world. And James Bennett, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, man. And just to close out, right, like, I just wanted you to think about that Duke Ellington quote, you know, there's two kinds of music. There's good music, and then there's everything else. Switched on Pop is produced by Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding. Huge thanks to James Bennett II for joining us. We are proud members of the Vox Media Network. Brandon McFarland is our amazing editor-engineer. Megan Lubin and Bridget Armstrong, producers. Liz Kelly Nelson and Ashok Kerwa, executive producers. Uh, you can find our podcast anywhere that podcasts live. And we'll be back every Tuesday with uh, striking new analyses of pop hits reach out to us on twitter uh we want to know what you're hearing and until then thanks for listening support for switched on pop comes from vibe check if you need more of my friend sam sanders in your life then you'll want to check out his new pod called vibe check each week sam and his two best friends writer saeed jones and journalist and producer zach stafford 
make sense of what's going on in the news and culture from foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup. Every Wednesday, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's like your favorite group chat come to life. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.